Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that throws glitter onto the drab world of politics. I'm Jacob Jarvis. On today's show, led by donkeys, what is the evidence emerging from the COVID inquiry revealing about our dear leaders? And musical chairs in Parliament, with former Tory MPs and business leaders defecting to Labour, is Keir Starmer winning over the blue corner with a small c conservative message? Before we start, we wanted to say something about the situation in Israel and Gaza. It is obviously the biggest news around at the moment. More and more details emerge every day and we will return to the issue periodically, of course, when we have the right guest or to assess major developments. This does not mean that we don't acknowledge the plight of innocent people in that region or that we don't extend our solidarity to them. It just means that there are only so many ways of expressing our sense of horror at the events. This ongoing catastrophe does not need another running commentary and our focus is domestic politics for the most part. Now, let me introduce you to today's panel. First up is the author of Haven't You Heard and Escape, Marie Leconte. Hi, Marie. Hello. Marie, another week, another finding of bullying and sexual misconduct by a Tory MP with another hefty suspension possible. Who is it this time and what's going on? Uh, Well, first of all, I would like to say that when planning was happening for this podcast, I I did not know what to make of the fact that this news broke. And then Alex said, oh, Marie, you know, I thought of you, like, you know, let's get you to talk about this. I'm I'm the creep correspondent and that's delightful. Um, But no, uh, it's Peter Bone, uh, former deputy leader of the House of Commons under Boris Johnson, uh, is almost certainly going to get suspended for six weeks from Parliament, which means that we may get yet another by-election uh, who was found to have uh, allegedly bullied and sexually uh, harassed a former member of staff around 10 years ago. And um, accusations include instructing or physically forcing the complainant to put his hand on his lap when Mr. Bone was unhappy with him or his work. And he also verbally belittled, ridiculed, abused and humiliated him and repeatedly physically struck him and threw things. So it's all it's actually an incredibly bleak story. The details are very upsetting. And yeah, but, but also I think that the, one of the very striking things um, about this is that the person first right to make a complaint in 2015, then in 2017, and only now in 2023 is something being done. Yeah, that is quite a damning indictment of the way these sort of issues are handled, isn't it, really? Absolutely. And I think it it sort of becomes a kind of really perverted catch-22 as well, because things, you know, like the process takes so long that by the end, that by the time something happens, then quite often, as has essentially happened this time with Peter Bone, uh, the person accused can say, oh, God, but it was all, you know, so long ago. Why are we talking about this now? And it's like, well, they kind of talked about it not long after it happened. It's just that somehow it took that long to get anywhere. Yeah. So, again, it becomes, I think, a really sort of like perverse thing by the end. So, no, it, it's all very bleak, although I'm, yeah, on, on, on a brief lighter note, I do kind of, I, I'm kind of enjoying the image of uh, this parliament. Essentially, there's never going to be an election. There's just going to be a by-election one at a time. Yeah. And, like, you know, Labour will get to majority <laughs> just one seat at a time. Yeah, it's going to be like when everyone resigned from the cabinet and eventually decided, <laughs> there we go. That's it, I suppose. Next on the panel is actor and broadcaster Alexandreou. Hi, Alex. Hi. Alex, we can report some happier news from the Polish general election. So podcast favourite Donald Tusk has rather upended recent trends at the moment, hasn't he? What has happened there? Well, I mean, I, I think it's one of the biggest political reversals in recent years, actually. Um, the hard right law and justice party was considered by most people to have a complete stranglehold on Polish politics, um, uh, and they have lost their majority despite winning very narrowly more votes than anyone else. Um, but it looks like the three parties, three opposition parties, civil coalition, which is led by Donald Tusk, uh, Third Way and the New Left, 
they all ran on separate tickets, but had already pledged to work together um, in a coalition. And they have more than enough uh, seats to form that coalition. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, Law and Justice Party has, has lost a bunch of seats. And the party further to the right of the Law and Justice Party, if you can believe such a thing, there is something actually <laughs> further to the right. And they've made no inroads either. So they can be uh, no help in a possible coalition. Um, now, obviously, look, many a slip twixt cup and lip. The final results will be announced on Tuesday. The president of Poland is still Andrzej Duda, who is from the Law and Justice Party, and he will give current Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki a first chance to put together a government. But most uh, uh, Polish commentators are saying that that's it for Morawiecki. Um, and even if he fails a parliament in opposition to his president, will be quite a tricky situation, right? So even if the opposition put together a coalition, they will have a president that is from the the opposing side. Um, so I think we will see constitutional politics, politics stretch to their limit. But considering, I mean, considering that at their height, three years ago, Duda's PIS were 22 points ahead of the nearest person in the polls. This is a huge dent in the sort of fatalistic, the far right is on the march across Europe uh, narrative. It really is a big bucking of the trend and long may it continue. And completing the panel is comedian Matt Green. Hello, Matt. Hello. So the Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, has announced a Texas-style review of short prison sentences. He says that's because short sentences don't actually rehabilitate offenders and it also interrupts them from spending time with their family and with their, their work and stuff like that. It could also be that prisons are completely full. Who knows? I don't know whether it's his, you know, his good nature or practicality there that's making him make that decision. How did it come to this for a, for a party which described itself as the party of law and order. Well, I mean, I was very excited when I heard about this Texas-style justice system. I assumed it involved <laughs> cowboy hats. Yeah. Spices of some horses. kind. I mean, I mean, we've got a police stables near us where I live and we see the police horses go up. I mean, more of those would be great. They're always, they're always fun to see. Um, and the thing is, Alex Chalk, just a few weeks ago, when we were talking about the prisoner escape situation, um, I was looking into that and I saw that he had described the new prison modernisation scheme as the second biggest government project after HS2. So, <laughs> so next to go, potentially. So presumably the next to go, yeah. yeah they've decided, yeah, we're going to stop making any more, you know. Idea: We build the high-speed trains, but we just make them into prisons. The prisoners just go up and down the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just put them all in tunnels. I think that's the, that's that's how it works. Um, I'm assuming, therefore, Rishi Sunak's already made a video about that uh, in advance, yeah. explaining what's going to happen. That we can't send anyone new to prison. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's to uh, to bang the, the the same drum as we always do. It's austerity. They just haven't spent enough money on prisons over such a long time that now they simply don't have enough um, prison places. And ironically, actually. I think if they do stop having short sentences so much, I think that is a good thing. I mean, community sentencing is probably a good idea, but it does feel like they've, they've kind of made the right decision for the wrong reasons. Yeah, they've been forced into being lefties accidentally, haven't yeah. they? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's worth saying that the, home, the, the prison system used to be under the home office's purview until like two decades ago. 
Um, and, and you've now ended up with a slightly ridiculous situation where you have an ambitious Home Secretary that keeps announcing new criminal offences and keeps saying, we're going to prosecute everyone that, you know, shoplifts baby, baby formula and creates, you know, new public order offences. But then a separate, quite weakened justice department that just doesn't have anywhere to put all these people. During the pandemic, Boris Johnson was reportedly working away on a biography of Shakespeare. At the same time, though, he was becoming the protagonist or antagonist, I'll let you decide for yourself, of a tragic comedy, perhaps worthy of coming from the quill of the bard himself. WhatsApp messages have emerged from the inquiry into COVID where Simon Case said the government looked like a terrible, tragic joke with a serious deficit of credibility. Perhaps we all knew that to be the case, but it remains startling to see it written out so starkly by the Cabinet Secretary. Alex, what were the key revelations for the first couple of weeks of the second leg of the inquiry? It's sort of been a confirmation of the worst case scenario of what we suspected was happening behind the scenes. And I think that's why it's so profoundly worrying. There's a sense of panic, of absolute chaos, a lack of communication, just delays, factional bitching and gossiping, just derailing the action that that needed to happen. Cummings and team basically are using the pandemic as a proxy battle with Carrie Johnson in the in the flat upstairs, scientific advice being ignored. Matt Hancock comes across as just utterly useless. He never came across that way before. He yeah, it's a big shock, so really. yeah. <laughs> Cabinet office, unprepared, unresponsive, doesn't care. And at the centre of it all, the most extraordinary thing is this, this toddler, Boris Johnson, with everyone around him trying to babysit him. That's, that's the thing that comes through most clearly. There's a message from one senior civil servant saying to someone on Johnson's SPAD team, and I quote, we will pre-brief PM again for five minutes before coming into the room. This is a must, so he's not just winging it. Would be great if you can prime boss to agree with me. He appears to me a bit more like a teenager, I'd say, over toddler, because simultaneously people are trying to rein him in or motivate him to fucking do anything at all. It's like this I mean, weird sort of mix it's of It's just extraordinary, parenting. this idea that unless you tell him again, just minutes before he goes into a room, he's likely to wander off script <laughs> and, and sort of order some disastrous measure that you can't then rein back. I mean, horrific. I feel quite conflicted about this because I know it's very bad to diagnose people from afar. But reading about that stuff, I was like, that man has like the most ADHD than anyone has ever has ADHD. Like, <laughs> it is just such a like, oh, yeah, if you don't tell me about something immediately mm. and then expect me to you know, remember it, I will forget. I will talk about something else. Who are you yeah. again? Who am I? Yeah, he just seems to split away at any moment, doesn't he? In a, in a sort of strange way for someone who claims to have been able to read a lot of really long and dense books but maybe maybe he hasn't maybe that's all part of a part of the mystique it's very easy to pretend you've read lots of long yeah. books at someone else <laughs> and then just bluff your way through that's yeah. the problem alex how shaken does the government's refrain of we followed the science look when it comes into this context I mean, this is probably the greatest revelation. It's, it's not getting much attention at the moment because there is so much going on. But I think in a, quiet, in a quieter moment, it will come into focus and people will be really very angry. 
Sir Patrick Valance wrote in his diary, and I quote again, I'm worried that a sage is trouble vibe is appearing in number 10. It may even be that government on occasion selects what it wants. There is a paper from cabinet office on the, on the one meter, two meter review. Some person has completely rewritten the science advice. They've just cherry picked. Quite extraordinary. That I think is going to be very, very difficult for anyone involved with that administration to get over. I wrote a long piece for Byline in June 2020, and my conclusion was that the government didn't follow the science. It sort of cornered the science. It bullied the science into saying what it wanted to do anyway. Um, Because the science at that moment, if we cast our minds back, was incredibly uncertain. We just didn't know enough. And so to to appear nightly flanked by, you know, the chief medical officer and the chief scientific um, advisor and say, oh, uh, so from today you have to do X and we know this definitively, was profoundly dishonest. And it may have, it may have worked into nudging people um, to obey the instructions at that moment. But I think long term, like if there were another pandemic today, I think compliance rate would be so low. So we've set ourselves up, I think, for a very long uphill uh, battle to restore public confidence in these institutions. Yeah, I still see people on sort of Facebook and things like that saying whenever they hear of anyone getting COVID or COVID seems to, the numbers appear anecdotally to go up to them going, I wouldn't let them lock me down again. I'm not going to let it, even though there's no, there would appear to be no discussion around that happening. People still passionately want to advocate that they wouldn't let that happen. I sort of feel like that's a trauma response though. Like I get that as well. I am one of those people literally yesterday on Blue Sky, I posted something that amounted to the state cannot lock me up ever again, Uh, which I realise to be clear is a mental thing to just say out of nowhere. I'm aware of that. Um, (laughs) But but I think, and I realise that's probably a separate discussion for a separate time. But I do think that the fact that we've not really addressed the trauma of the lockdowns will come to kind of fuck us up a bit further down the road because I think lots of people were quite psychologically and emotionally broken by the lockdowns. Marie, when it comes to the the carry sort of dialogue around all of this, it feels to me really like like gossip. It's blokes at work who seem to have a problem with their boss wanting to then blame it on his partner, which is happening. It's a bit... Does it allow the people who really need to be held accountable to dodge it? Is she unfortunately been thrown as someone that uh, allows them all to deflect I kind of disagree, I think, because I I mean, so first of all, Carrie, I think, is not any political spouse. She had been a special advisor. She'd been the head of comms for the Conservative Party. She was very much a kind of political player in her own right long before she got with Boris Johnson. Um, But the other thing as well is I I do think it's very telling, even, you know, the idea. And and I I do actually believe that Carrie probably meddled quite a lot when Boris was in in number 10. Um, I think that also tells us a lot about who Boris was as a person and as a prime minister. Because I think, you know, a a strong prime minister, like, I agree that it's misogynistic to say, well, you know, the witch in number 10, you know, is the one running everything. But it's also not incorrect at all to say, hang on, you're literally prime minister of the entire country and you can't stand up to your wife. 
that does, I think, say something, and, and which is why I, I know I'm the most obvious person to make that argument. But I think that it is one of those cases where gossip does kind of matter because gossip is often about the character of someone. And actually, especially, you know, looking at, you know, you know, times like pandemics, you kind of need to know about the moral character of the person trying to run everything. And Boris was clearly failing on many fronts. And I think that actually the whole... I'll kind of let Carrie do stuff because I can't be bothered, you know, with things being annoying at home when we have dinner together. Uh, like that, that is actually very, yes, it's symptomatic of who he is um, as a person. So, no, so I, I don't think it's just gossip and I don't think it's necessarily inherently sexist, especially because I do believe it's at least partly true. But isn't that the point, that it's a, it's a picture that's built entirely from what other people, all of whom are men, are imagining goes on behind closed doors. I mean, isn't that the essence of it? Um, but, well, again, sort of yes and no. I, I do think we have some elements of proof. Like if you look at, let's be honest, you know, a fair few of the policies Boris got out when he was prime minister, there were all like Carrie, Carrie Johnson's like specific niche interests, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> that can't be a coincidence. And also he was, I remember that there was at least one aide who Carrie really hated and who left number 10 for some reason, even though other people quite like them. So, so I do think, you know, you, you can point to, I, I can't do all of them from memory, but there were a number of stories where it was like, okay, mm. you know, fine. Well, I, I can't, I probably can't testify in a court of law that Carrie definitely did this, but also, hmm. It's the issue that this was just simply not run-of-the-mill day-to-day politics. And so gossip really shouldn't have played anywhere near as much of a part as it did in the discussions and what we're seeing at the moment of these COVID WhatsApps coming out, this surely should have all been way too serious for these people to be not treating it with more serious care and respect. You know, I, I think the, the general running of government shouldn't be so gossipy and all over WhatsApp. But in this particular situation, surely was a time they could have held back. So I agree. And, and this is, to be very clear, this is absolutely like really, truly not even 1% a defence of the government. Uh, but my point is, I think I'm not really sure how you can expect people in systems to change. If, like, you know, the, if the systems have been in this way for a very long time and the people who got elected were brought up within the systems and only know how to work within the mm, systems, mm. I don't think you can expect all of them to wake up one day and because a big thing has happened to be like, hey, guys, we are now entirely <laughs> different people yeah. and we work in a completely different way. So Matt Hancock, your favourite, comes off particularly badly in what we've seen here. Uh, when he's not commented on as a, as a just complete lightweight he looks like a bullshitter on the other hand why was he not just removed during the pandemic i think well i mm, the best possible faith interpretation would be he started it and you know and he sort of had to see it through <laughs> the perhaps slightly slightly less um you know perfect entirely good faith um argument i would make is that they definitely needed someone to blame everything on at the end uh, who they could be like oh you've been a very very bad boy mm. we were all exemplary like, we were all brilliant um, but regrettably this one man who will happen to hate anyway <laughs> did everything that was bad and and now we've got rid of him and everything's fine again. There's, there's one email which is just fantastic from, from a senior unnamed civil servant that says something asserts a statement and then in brackets says, this is from Matt, so obviously aim <laughs> off. 
<laughs> well, he's got a very successful career on TikTok these days. So who, like, who's got the he final has laugh either out of grossly this? misunderstood <laughs> this or he's lying about it. <laughs> Matt, Boris Johnson is said to have scrawled bollocks over briefing documents that detailed the symptoms of long COVID. Mm. Does it feel like a particular symptom of at least this Conservative government and, well, Conservative at, at large to just disbelieve that people can have the incapacity to work? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, he, he isn't just uh, alleged to have done it. We've seen the pictures, haven't we, of him writing it. And it's, again, it's just like, he just wrote, wrote it in this kind of huge letters across this document as though he, you could sort of imagine him holding it in the in a fist and sort of scrawling <laughs> it with a crayon. It's very, it, it's, it's very, and you think, again, this is this is meant to be someone who's right at the centre of power in the middle of a huge crisis. Um, but no, I mean, I think you're right. I think, um, sadly, it's a sort of, it's a vicious combination of victim blaming and taking precedence for the economy over everything else. The idea that if you can make people believe that disability or long COVID or long-term sickness of any type isn't real, then you can convince people they don't need to pay for it. And it also, I think, comes back to this sort of bluff public school um, idea that, you know, sickness isn't really a thing and that you just have to pull up your socks and if you get knocked over playing rugby, you make sure you go to the next lesson and all that kind of stuff. And I think that is I think that is very much part of Boris's persona uh, and so that's bled into his politics, you know. And and also because he, he referenced Gulf War Syndrome, that was the thing he was comparing it to. And again, that's, that is still a very contested idea and there is quite a lot of evidence that Gulf War Syndrome is a real thing and it's it was based on all sorts of um, uh, soldiers being exposed to um, pretty nasty substances during the Gulf War and the Royal British Legion is still campaigning for sufferers to get more government assistance and compensation and acknowledgement. So it's that sort of, the thing that Boris is doing is just sort of, d d uh, of dismissing anything without any evidence, which is his, you know, that was very much his modus operandi. With, uh, with the economic side of things, I mean, Rishi Sunak, mm. Chancellor at the time, rolled out Eat Out, Help Out, yeah. which just looking back on, every time I think about it, I think that just seems more and more ludicrous, really. Yeah. Uh, does this have a potential to become a real issue for Sunak now, this inquiry? Well, maybe. I mean, the thing is, you say you look back at it on the time. I remember d looking at it when it was happening, going, this is clearly a terrible idea. And I wasn't the only one. There were lots of people saying this is clearly a terrible idea. This is clearly eat out to help the virus and all that sort of thing. And 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 and, and something else that's come out of this inquiry is that instead, uh, this this was clearly really a choice that he was making between spending money on giving people proper sick pay to stay at home when they had the virus to stop it spreading, but instead, he didn't do that. He rolled out Eat Out to Help Out because that was a big um, photo opportunity. It gave him a big sort of boost with people. There are still, I know plenty of people who are still like, well, the one thing, good thing Rishi Sunak ever did was give us 50% off pizza for a month. You know? And I think, okay, <laughs> I feel like you maybe should broaden your horizons. I don't know if it will have a political effect or not. I mean, I sort of feel like maybe people have made their... Uh, sort of made their minds up about this already, that um, mm, mm. if they were already pretty unkeen on Johnson and Sunak and the rest during the pandemic and what they did, then they're already not keen. And I think the people who were sort of fairly ambivalent about it are basically trying to forget all about COVID. And I think the thing that Alex said about this is obviously it is currently being totally missed in the news because there's obviously so much else going on. And I do wonder if it will have a long-term effect because Labour don't seem to want to 
press on it either. They, they seem to also want to forget about it. They don't want to talk about COVID because they know that that was a horrible time that none of us really want to go through again. So I'm not sure. It feels to me like I'm sure in years to come, people will look back and say this was a, you know, people will judge, you know, the old phrase of history will judge them. I'm sure that will be the case, but I don't know if it will have a sort of immediate political impact. Alex, are there lessons that are emerging from this? Could there be some good, it would appear, coming forward from it? I mean... <laughs> Other than don't be, don't vote these guys in ever again. <laughs> One of the lessons emerging is to, you know, to the people behind the scenes, stop enabling those who are patently unsuited for office and elevating them to office because you think they're easy to manage and manipulate. And maybe to the wider public at large, stop electing lying wankers because they're a laugh. I know it's a really basic lesson, but it's not like the character of Boris Johnson was unknown to the country. It was just a, this weird extension that he's a laugh, he was all right as London mayor, therefore I'm going to put my life in his hands and the nuclear codes. I think it needs, people need to understand that there is a break somewhere there, right? Where it matters aptitude matters, someone's abilities and ethos and moral character, they matter. Um, but I mean, more specifically, it looks to me like the thing that's emerging is that this isn't fixable. Like the, this can't be tweaked and made all right. Like contingency planning screams for root and branch reform, um, how the four nations communicate with each other, root and branch reform, how Whitehall is organized, you know, how the departments um, interact, basically how professional government is in such emergencies. It's got to be systemic. It can't be left to the chance of whether the individuals involved happen to be professional and serious. Do you, do you see what I mean? Because you cannot completely rely on that, then the system in place has to be professional and serious for them. Yeah, there has to be the sort of guardrails there, don't there, to, to ensure that that happens. It reminds me of that book, uh, The Checklist by Atul Gawande, where he talk, he's the surgeon who talks about why um, and how they improved massively um, surgery by putting checklists in, 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 in surgical situations and they... They can apply that across all sorts of, you know, airline safety massively improved when they started using checklists. And, mm. and yeah, mm. if you can systematize it, if you can make it so that people, even if they're having a bad day, they're tired, they don't really, they're not concentrating, but they have to do the checklist every time, that can help. And it, it, I know that's a very simple thing to say in terms of, you know, having a checklist but from pandemic true. isn't possible. But, 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 that, but that's what, yeah, I think, I think it's absolutely right. But if you it's systematize true because... The response, yeah. I mean, e e even in America, which at the time had had its own set of wankers, but can you possibly imagine that during a pandemic, the president, the vice president, and the rest of the cabinet would be sitting in the same room, breathing the same air, having meetings? Like, where is your risk management? Mm. How can the prime minister, the deputy prime minister, the health secretary, and the chancellor be having meetings in the same room that you were having a birthday party 10 minutes before. I, I mean, at a really basic level, we got away very, very cheaply. This, this thing could have swept 
through number 10, and it did, but only to a certain extent, it could have really paralyzed central government, like completely, put everyone in hospital. But then we did have Dominic Raab in charge, so... You know. <laughs> and, it's not, and I'll never forget that week. No, exactly. Best week but, of my but life. But the point is, it's not Trump that uh, uh, you know didn't want to have a meeting with Mike Pence. The Secret Service would just never allow it. That's the bottom line. That's what I mean by systemic things to to make stupid people do the right thing. <laughs> Tory defectors are like buses at the minute, if your services are running, at least that is, with two coming along at once. Former Telegraph editor Max Hastings and former Tory MP Anna Soubry have both said they're voting for Labour at the next election. They join major Tory donors saying they're switching support for a variety of reasons, while there was an astounding number of businesses and trade organisations with stalls at this year's Labour conference. In addition to this, there is also confusion elsewhere after SNP MP Lisa Cameron baffled Westminster and Holyrood with news that she had decided to defect to the Conservatives. She crossed the floor claiming that Rishi Sunak personally helped her escape what she called the toxic and bullying culture of the party's Westminster group. Marie, is this actually a good thing that we've got such a fluid culture here that there's, you know, people are healing their differences or is it sort of going into the narrative that basically they're all the same? So I think that there's one thing to know about rats um, and is that they really hate a sinking ship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like really the one thing they cannot stand. Yeah. But they don't uh, usually jump onto other sinking ships, which seems to be the case from the... <laughs> That's such a good point. <laughs> the SNP to the Tories. Uh, well, so to be fair, that one, I think she was literally about to get deselected. Like That, that, that was a proper, like, you can't fire me, I quit. Yeah. Um, which we respect. We have to, like, annoyingly respect. Um, so she loves crypto. That is the main thing I know about her. She's okay. just the MP who loves crypto. No, I know there's a new Matt Hancock. Like, as, as one crypto MP leaves the Conservative Party, another one arrives. I don't know. It's, it's not. It's something I'm struggling to to get exercise about because I do think I think the the electorate has been very volatile for quite a few elections now. Uh, and even the fact that we're talking about you know Labour majority at the next election, looking at the results in 2019, is insane. Um, so I think yeah, again, like the the electorate is not really tied at the moment, so it would figure that actually that would eventually be reflected um, in the political class. Um, But beyond that, I don't think, yeah, I I do just think it's just that the Tories are doing appallingly and the Labour Party have got back to the kind of broadly centre ground, kind of, again, broadly speaking, and so a number of people are going... Okay, I'm just gonna. I'm, it's been so fun, weirdos who are about to lose. So I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna. You know, go over there now. With how badly the Tories are doing and the yeah the weirdo narrative around them, I mean, do they need to relearn the art of optimistic storytelling, as aspiring Tory MP Sebastian Payne has suggested? And I mean, when did they last have that? I mean, to be fair, very recently, like Boris Johnson, that that was his thing, right? And I think he came in in 2019 at a point when the country was in a really bad state um, and everyone hated each other and everything was awful. And he said, all fine, all fine. Elect me is going to be tremendous. Like the sunlit uplands, etc. So no, I I think we've had that recently in her own way. Liz Truss as well was very much saying, well, you know, if the state stops existing, then we will thrive finally. Well, um, was that not just blagging? Has there got to be a difference between what's optimistic storytelling and what is just complete and utter, complete and utter boosterish? 
nonsense. So, I mean, they did. Yeah, I suppose they were. It was optimistic storytelling of a kind, but... You're just completely making it up <laughs> as you go along. It's not really, it's not it's, taking yeah. people on a journey with the story, is it? Because eventually they realise this story isn't happening. No, I think, oh my God, there'd be such a good crossover. Like, I don't know if you've seen the whole trend on kind of like TikTok and Instagram of the, the delusional girl summer, or like delusional girl autumn, like Delulu. <laughs> Uh, oh my no, god, the, the Delulu mindset I've is seen actually girl very maths funny. And boy math. Uh, no, so the, the Delulu mindset is great. It's really just living your life, assuming everything is better than it actually uh, <laughs> okay. actually is. So, so I think that there's a weird again. You know, I, I didn't really think that Boris Johnson and kind of you know 21 year olds uh, working in marketing in New York had tons in common, <laughs> but apparently they do. Uh, but no, uh, rich the, parents. Like, <laughs> 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 Well done. Well done. That was very good. Well, I think you could argue that David Cameron was quite good at that back in 2010. I feel like Theresa May was was not the most kind of like cheery, optimistic woman there was. Um, But yeah, probably Cameron actually, you know, the Cameron in 2010 and 2015, like you, you kind of did have an idea of what Cameroon Britain would be. And it was going to be better. So yeah, probably, probably him. But but again, yeah, I, I would say that most conservative leaders are quite good at that. And Strikingly, so I wonder, this is very much a pet theory of mine, but I think one of the reasons why Labour did well in 2017 and tanked in 2019 was that 2017, actually, the manifesto and the Labour platform was quite optimistic. It was the proper left, like, a be- you know, another world is possible, etc. Uh, we can we can hope for better things. And 2019 was properly just like, everything is shit. Oh, my God. Ah. And people really hate that. Matt, does it feel like there is a genuine shift in the political axis here? Or as Marie said, it's just people jumping ship whilst they can, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think it is the... I think that probably references it more. It's people betting on the winning horse, uh, or at least not betting on the winning horse necessarily, maybe just not betting on the mad horse um, (laughs) that's doing dressage in the corner rather than trying to win the race. Yeah. Which is what it feels like the Tory party is doing some of the time. And particularly with this (laughs) sort of absolutely ruthless focus on um, culture war issues and things, it just feels like it's not really aiming at what people are trying to to, to care about, really. I think for a lot, I I suppose it it does show that Starmer and his Labour team have moved resolutely into the centre, even into the centre right in areas, perhaps. Um, and and the Tories are quite happily giving them that space for some reason. And so Starmer's taking it. Um, but I don't think it, for me, it doesn't suggest that all of those people are going to be voting Labour their whole lives. It's probably just for now. Yeah, that shift on, has it been an axis? I mean, I think that's right what you said about Keir Starmer. Seems like he's just getting a, he's taking on that ability to be able to fill up the political space, which yeah. is what Boris Johnson did for such an amount of time for the Conservatives. And it feels like that space is is dwindling for the Tories. Oh, no, sorry, th- this is only partially related, but someone described that type of thing as a gas person recently, which I really like. Like, yeah, whatever the space, they just expand to fill it, which I thought was really good. <laughs> Matt, Christian Wakeford crossed the floor from the Tories to Labour last year. Mm. Do you think it should be so easy for people to to flip like that? I think people's reaction to this sort of thing is entirely partisan. <laughs> I think if it's <laughs> if it's someone moving to your side, then it's someone with moral courage <laughs> finally realizing that they were on the wrong side of history and they've made, you know, a mistake and they're moving to the right side. If it's the other way around, it's a cynical, selfish move done for political reasons and they're an absolute traitor and they should be immediately thrown out. And yeah, I mean there was an attempt um back at the beginning of 2020. There was the um, an unsuccessful uh, private members bill, the recall of MPs, brackets, change of party affiliation bill, which got slightly swamped by COVID and everything, um, which obviously 
which the idea of that was that it would have required a by-election if you changed parties. Um, and actually, ironically, Christian Wakeford voted for it, I think. I feel like it's a situation where the constitutional situation is quite different to the practical situation. Like, I think people tend to actually, in reality, vote for parties rather than MPs. But there's no way of knowing that for certain. And without changing the voting system, we can't really legislate on that basis because that would lead to situations where parties were in a lot of, had a lot of power over MPs, even more than they do already. But also the reality is they always, almost always lose their seats at the next election um, when that happens. So maybe it's a sort of self-regulating system. I will just say like, that there is, like, I, I can't, like, I'm nerdy enough to know this, not quite nerdy enough to talk about it without notes, but there is definitely <laughs> research that shows that, but, you know, like 97% of people vote for the party, not the person. Like, mm. It's not. So I think it's like when you, um, so when you go in for an election the second time, you do usually get a little personal bounce. Mm. Um, but again, of, you know, like basically nothing. But apart from that, no, people just don't really care who you are. Alex, Lisa Cameron's defection was obviously time to embarrass the SNP leader Hamza Yousaf ahead of his first party conference. It has been a difficult time for him personally at the moment as well. How is he performing at the moment? I mean, I felt very sympathetic to Yousaf anyway, I think, already from from a political point of view. Um, I, one can't fail to see the case for Scottish independence after 13 years of just being battered by austerity and cruelty and incompetence and then Brexit. I mean, if I could declare independence from this lot, I would. (laughs) So why wouldn't they want to? Um, And filling Sturgeon's shoes was always a pretty impossible task because she's a political giant, really. Um, Added to which he inherited a Scottish National Party that was very much coming down from his high watermark and about to face a caravan load of trouble none of it of his making, Um, added to which has come just the incredible personal anxiety of having family, including his in-laws, trapped in Gaza. I mean, I marvel at his composure, actually. I think he's conducted himself with incredible dignity and reserve, and I'm happy to see him make his first real mark on SNP by adjusting the strategy from... Um, looking uh, at the next general election as a de facto referendum, which which I think was Sturgeon's, in my view, rare political misstep from her, actually, to tie those two things together. I think if he's given time, he he's expected to do quite badly at, an, at the next election, I think. And I hope he's given time to then turn things around and make his mark on the party rather than discard it. I think he's quite an honourable politician and a person with the right kind of heart and the right kinds of qualities. As it came out in your answer then, it's quite hard to talk about the SNP without talking about Scottish independence. Yes. But Lisa Cameron then, it's quite a leap to join the (laughs) Conservative and Unionist Party, isn't it? I mean, look, let me start by saying that nobody deserves abuse and death threats because they've switched party, whatever you think of their politics. No. What she says is that she left because of an internal party fight that made her feel isolated and unsupported and anxious. And she also says that the reason she went to the Tories is because she has changed her mind on Scottish independence and now thinks the UK government is doing a great job. I think either of those positions is possible. They might be true. 
I think both of them being true so conveniently at the same time, it stretches credibility uh, a little bit to say that, oh, I was very unhappy within this party. And as if by miracle, I also think Scotland now shouldn't be independent. So I have to go with a cynical Marie explanation on this one. I think I think she's she was about to be pushed. <laughs> Matt Nick Clegg was was strikingly similar to David Cameron in many ways, and then there are people who maybe some people who aren't Tories quite like, like Rory Stewart or Caroline Noakes, who maybe it would seem a, a little bit nice to be part of the party that they they were part of. Kate Hoyu was also a bit of a mystery as a Labour MP, for example. <laughs> do do certain politicians? just seem like they're in the wrong party anyway. And this problem, you know, when you say people vote for for party, it's all becoming a bit amorphous in certain ways. We don't know who the tribes are in each one of them. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem is, or the reality is that parties are are all coalitions, unless you're talking about a very, very small party, a very niche concerned party. Um, I mean, even when you look at polling of, um, you know, leave or remain, something like 2% of UKIP voters wanted to vote remain and things like that and you think well what how did that yeah. happen <laughs> who are you like what what is that um, i remember when uh, i mean yeah on brexit as well there was uh, there was i think i think gibraltar voted 96% remained 4% leave and again i at the time i was doing i remember doing a gig over in gibraltar very soon after the vote and just sort of saying to the audience who are that 4% yeah. where where are you know what is that about mm-hmm. and the I people think that's... they give the really niche answers on family fortunes exactly exactly <laughs> <They're> <laughs> people who... <laughs> it's always a pointless answer every yeah. single, everything they say um, so I think yeah so of course there are parties every, every party is a coalition in some way and so some people join parties because of um, previous leaders who they admired or previous principles that they admired or previous policies that they admired or that they think um, should be brought back and they were they might not actually match what the current leadership want but they that's why they did it um and people get older and things move and they get left behind by history and so yeah you can see how it happens that people end up sort of thinking well i haven't moved they've moved and maybe it's a bit of both yeah it's it's a strange bit of tribalism there isn't it that you know my i have family members who would just sort of vote labor and always vote labor and then i speak to them about what labor are doing and where they're at at the moment and they don't seem to completely agree with them yeah on a lot of things and i think well is that because it's a broad church or is that just because your parents your parent your parents and their parents voted for this thing and you'll just stick there i mean i think the reality is i mean as marie said that people vote party rather than um like specific mps i think it's also people we don't know it doesn't matter you know how much polling you do it's very hard to really understand why people vote as they do you know i know from from myself as someone who thinks of myself as reasonably connected to politics and reads a lot about it and, and, and understands at least some of it about it. I know that I've definitely been to elections where I've got to the polling booth and thought, I don't really know why I'm voting this way. I'm sort of basically don't like the other side or this M- the MP seems to have done a reasonable job and I don't really recognise any. But I, and, and I can, particularly for sort of local elections, you end up sort of going, well, I don't know, I sort of guess maybe that party or maybe that, yeah. maybe I'll sort of mix it up a bit and and that's from someone who's <laughs> fairly into politics. So I think a lot of people, yeah, they a lot of people say they don't really decide until they get into the booth, which is yeah. sort of amazing and sort of terrifying. Yeah, it? when it comes to the ranking, it's like, for me, I'm like, Labour, then... Yeah, exactly. I don't know <laughs> beyond that. 
Uh, Alex, so we've heard there might be yet another by-election coming on with Peter Bone and that situation Mm. there. But there are two coming up this week. What does the polling show us about the state of play at the moment? Really exciting. Um, They are both on a knife edge, genuinely, like really too close to call, both of them. Tamworth is the constituency vacated by Chris Pincher, whose contact ultimately brought Boris Johnson down. Um, Mid-Bedfordshire is Nadine Doris's old constituency. On paper, Tamworth is a tougher majority to overcome. Pincher got 66% to Labour's 23 in 2019. And yet that looks the more likely of the two to flip. And that is because Labour is clearly the challenger there. So basically, all anti-government vote can funnel towards them. Um, the latest poll has both Tories and Labour's Labour on forty percent, literally neck and neck. But the added factor there is that Reform are reputed to be doing quite well, which might split the Tory vote. Um, Mid Bedfordshire, on the other hand, completely different. It's a three-way race. Most polls show the Tories very narrowly ahead of Labour, within one point and the Lib Dems very close behind that. I have seen a lot of very naughty Lib Dem literature go out, suggesting they're in second place. They are not. By yeah, I saw that chart that really that didn't seem to make sense. Um, this is one constituency where there's definitely no informal pact. All of them are going for it. And as a result, the Tories might manage to keep hold of it. That's what John Curtis thinks, because, of, because the anti-government vote will be split. Most smart money and betting odds has Labour narrowly winning Tamworth and the Tories narrowly keeping Mid-Bedfordshire. Maybe that will act as a wake-up call for a progressive coalition. Um, Having said that, I have a sneaky feeling in my waters that Labour might win both. It seems to me that voters are quite smart about tactical voting right now. They're really quite switched on. And uh, Nadine Dorr is really pissed people off by delaying her departure. And I have a sneaky suspicion that a few points will ebb away from the Lib Dems and to the Labour column in the last minute, in the booth, as Matt was saying. And if that happens, if if the Tories end up losing both, I think the, the gloom will be palpable. I think any hope of uh, winning the next election will be extinguished. So I think that will be quite a moment. Um, but uh, at the same time, if they if they win, if they keep one and lose one, it'll be defensible. The f- the little flame of hope will be still alive. And if they manage to win both, which is also a possible result, then they'll they'll get a a, a little bounce in the steps and say, "See, we're not we're not done and dusted. There's still fighting us." So I, I think this Thursday is possibly the most important by-election Thursday we've had in many, many years. Um, I'd be curious to know what Marie thinks. Oh, no, sorry. I just briefly laughed, uh, which was purely a hysterical reaction when you talked about the Tories losing the two seats because there was like, there's going to be a leadership contest. And like that, that just, I did a weird thing. So that, that was a purely what's physical... The feeling in your waters? What's the feeling in your waters? And Matt, I don't, do you have what? a prediction? 
Uh, so, not really. No, I think so I, I don't really do predictions. No, the, the one thing I was going to add is that I think on the kind of progressive alliance and tactical voting and stuff, I would be very relaxed if I were Labour and the Lib Dems because actually um, there are very few three-way marginals at the moment. Mm. So it's not so obviously. So, so I think basically it, it, I can't remember how many, but I think it's literally under five of them. So that's fine, you know, by all means, try and like, play tough, but also in the knowledge that, you know, it doesn't really matter. And also, I think if you look at resources, it is unlikely that those, I think, yeah, three or four seats, you know, both Labour and the Lib Dems all have the resources to fight them anyway. So, yeah, so mm, that, that's my mm. thing of actually it's not, I think that people have been talking about it quite a lot going, ooh, what's it going to mm. mean? Probably not much. <laughs> I was in a three-way marginal in um, 2010, I think it was. Uh, the seat I still live in, but it's, no, it's now quite a safe Labour seat, but it was a three-way marginal. And it was quite exciting thinking that for the very first time, I think, in my life, my vote felt like it mattered. And you got, yeah. we got so many leaflets from all the candidates. And as Alex said, that all the leaflets had different graphs on them showing, <laughs> you know, the Tories are the only people who can win against Labour and Labour are the only people who can win and Lib Dems are the only people. And it was, and in the end, it was, it was Labour. Labour just edged ahead and then the other two were quite close behind. It was all within 500 votes, I think. So um, it was quite exciting. I mean, I feel like these two by-elections, I haven't followed them hugely closely, but um, all I'm glad about is that, that ULEZ isn't a factor in yeah. either of these and we can't use that to somehow, you know, destroy even more of our environmental um, uh, planning. Don't jinx it. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What have the panel been using to distract themselves from the awfulness of the world around us in recent days? Marie, what is yours? Uh, oh, God, I'm going to be quite predictable again. I read a really good book from a Hungarian novelist from like the mid 20th okay, century. Nice. You'll be shocked to hear yet again. Um, but no, so um, Journey by Moonlight by... I'm going to butcher the name, but Antal Zerb, Zerb, I don't know how to say, but like S-Z-E-R-B. Really, really tremendous book, like really, really good. Incredible novel that kind of starts with this like youngish couple going on a honeymoon uh, to Venice and then events occur. I, I, I don't really want to spoil what happens after that, but it definitely goes in a, in a weird, unlikely direction. It's sort of quite, on the one hand, quite a book that, see, one of those books that should be sad but actually is written kind of, you know, so beautifully and lightly that you don't sort of feel bummed out reading it. Um, mm. God, I'm so, so like, amazing mm. to think I'm actually a literary critic on the side because <laughs> that, that, that was so eloquent. You don't get too bummed no. out. I have a copy um, of that book that I've been meaning to read and haven't, so oh, you've encouraged me. Well, there you me. go. No, it's really that. good. It's really good. <laughs> um, Matt, what's yours? Uh, well, first of all, I want to give a shout out to, I think, Marie and Alex. I'm Both of the things that you recommended recently, I am currently involved in. Um, tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, was that? That you, was not me. That so, was Alex. Was that Alex? Is that yeah. you as well? Oh, okay. Well, then it's a double Alex. I, th I could have sworn it was me. But no. um, I be, I'm reading that, and that is great. Uh, and I'm watching Ghosts, which is great. Um, Ooh, US or UK? UK. Ooh, I'm team series. US. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I no. prefer the US version. No, I haven't started. No. Throw her out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's done. But the, the, the thing that I've uh, watched this week, which I really enjoyed, um, which I didn't get to see in the cinema, was King Richard, the film about the Williams sisters. But obviously Will Smith playing their father, okay. Richard's, um, Richard Williams. And uh, it's just come out on Amazon Prime uh, and how they sort of built their careers or how he built their careers and how he kind of encouraged them. And um, it's just really nice. Actually. It's a really beautiful 
uh, film. There's lots of great performances in it. He's very good. I didn't think about him slapping anyone all the way through. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, there are some other very good performances. And it's a really a very uplifting film, as you would imagine. And there's something lovely about the way that they battled from very tough um, beginnings to dominate tennis for, for so many years. Um, yeah, I'd recommend it. Alex, what about you? So I've been on a Verdi overload um, <laughs> last week. I went to see La Forza del Destino, The Force of Destiny on, on Monday, and then Rigoletto on Thursday, added to uh, the Elixir of Love the week before, that's Donizetti. All three productions were exceptional. I can't tell you how good the direction, the the acting, the costumes, the, the orchestra at the, the moment is playing at its peak. The choral singing is just fantastic. And I paid under 20 quid for all three of them because you can get standing tickets um, that are literally just behind the dress circle. So you are standing just behind the best seats in the house. And there's a little sort of uh, cushioned bar on which you can lean. You, you know, you don't have to spend the entire thing standing there. And there's usually two quite generous breaks uh, where you can go and, you know, sit and have a drink or sit outside and, and rest yourself. Um, and like I said, I mean, that is cheaper than most West End cinemas. Um, and and you do get to see amazing productions. Booking just opened for December, January, February, March. There's some really good stuff in there. If if this is an introduction to opera, I would I would uh, recommend Cavalleria Rusticana and the Pagliacci uh, double bill. There's a Bohème coming up. There's a Tosca coming up. All of it very accessible, really musical, lovely stuff. So get on the Royal Opera uh, House website, look for the standing tickets and get your first experience of opera. It, it doesn't have to cost hundreds of pounds. If you disagree with my thing, Alex, I'm allowed to say, counterpoint from Marie, don't do it, opera sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, I don't have nothing I'm else sorry, to add. I thought I got rid of her, but she came back yeah, in. She's still in the studio. <laughs> she's, she came into the studio again. She's hiding. <laughs> Like I've taken the mic bugs. under the table. Just, yeah. <laughs> She's impossible to get rid of, like bed bugs from France. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine is, again, is Sopranos, because that's all I've been watching lately on television. So I'm finally on the final season. If anyone wants to talk about Sopranos to me, they can at any time. So we're both watching about Sopranos. I'm about, I'm about to start watching. This oh, is really good timing. It's, it's the coolest yeah. show nice. going. Yeah, yeah, I got my housemate to start watching it. Just yes, a tip. I, um, this is a tip that is not relevant to anyone now, but I watched Sopranos years ago and I got it on Netflix when Netflix used to send DVDs in the post. Oh, okay. And I got a DVD of it. Of, I think it was the third series. And I had got slightly bored of listening to the theme tune. So for the first two series, I would just skip the theme tune and I was fine. But I hadn't realised... <laughs> The, the third DVD, for some reason, they didn't just let you skip the theme tune. If you press skip, it skipped the first 10 minutes of every episode. So I kept skipping. And then I was watching the series going, this is a very confusing series. <laughs> <laughs> Things keep happening. And then, like, the next episode starts. And then suddenly something else has happened. And, and then... <laughs> 
And more than that, it was also a DVD that you had to turn over. It was one of those double oh, weird, wow. very rare double sided yeah. DVDs. And again, I didn't realize that. So I came to the end of the series. I was like, and started watching the fourth series. I was like, I feel like, and I sent like a very like nasty letter to them going, like, what have you, you sent me this rubbish DVD? And then they said, it's actually a double sided DVD. Yeah, so. yeah, sir, you're actually unbelievably thick. Yeah, sorry. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be watching brilliant. The Sopranos. That's brilliant. The Sopranos as a sort of elliptical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Microdosing the Sopranos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, it's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Marie Legant. Thank you. Thank you, Matt Green. Thank you. And thank you, Alex Andreu. My pleasure. Oh God, What Now? will be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thank you for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Podmasters Managing Editor, Jacob Jarvis. With Alexandreou, Marie LeConte, and Matt Green. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin, art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. <laughs>